Mm, please turn in your sutra text to page 82 and 83. We're starting right at the top tonight. In the Chinese, on page 82, we're going to start with the second word, ruo, yi, pusa. Okay, you want to repeat after me? Ruo, yi, pusa. Shu, sheng, yuan, li. Zi, zai, shi, xian. Guo, yu, shi, shu. Over to the right, please. If he employs specially supreme power of Bodhisattva's vows, to manifest at ease, he surpasses that number. In a hundred thousand kalpas, up to and including a hundred thousand million nayutas of kalpas, the number could not be counted or known. Okay. Um, here we're talking about uh, bodhisattva, and that's what our this chapter, the whole chapter is talking about bodhisattvas. So if you want to know about bodhisattvas, this is the book to read. This is the chapter of the Flower Dormant Sutra to read in that book. This is the place where the bodhisattva's uh, thoughts and behavior is explained in detail. So we've been uh, finding out about how a bodhisattva on the first ground mm, thinks, behaves, speaks, the kind of things that change in their minds. For example, bodhisattvas in the first ground lose fear. So before they get to this stage, even though they're still on the bodhisattva path, there are certain things they can still be afraid of. But at this point, they've learned to transform all fear. So these bodhisattvas uh, develop courage, fearlessness. That's what happens to bodhisattvas on the first ground. So uh, we've been learning about that. We've come to the actual uh, turning point in the first ground because at this point, right at our passage tonight, the prose stops and the verses begin. The way sutras are built is uh, they're layers. And one of the layers is prose. Prose is they literally in Chinese long lines. That's to say uh, it's declarative sentences. It's the text in a book, for example, or in a newspaper, or uh, in an essay. It's the grammatical sentences that build into paragraphs and down through. And that's uh, one of the layers. There's another layer, which is verses. And the verses are It's uh, metered verse. It's another form of written expression. And you call it poetry, you call it rhyme, all those different things. And that's 
a le- level, a layer of the sutra text. Now, there are scholars who, based on their research, say that most sutras started out with the verses first and that the prose came later. And you can make that case pretty easily because why? If you've ever tried to memorize something, you memorize it easier when it goes bump, 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 when it meters, when it's got what they call feet. Um, one really good reason for that is we have a meter inside us that works from conception. There's a certain, I don't know how many weeks it is, inside mother's womb when our heart first stop, starts up. That's the first meter. And for those nine months, the Chinese say ten months that we're in mother's womb, we are right there with her heart too. So we start out hearing bump, 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 bump. Bum. On top of that, there's another meter in there going. The meter of breath. And that's a regular thing that doesn't change a little slower during sleeping hours. But we hear those from our very first conscious imprint. We're hearing bump, 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 heartbeat and lungs. And if you think about the music that you like best, often the music that you like best, you don't quite know why this sounds right or why you want to sing along to it. But mm, there's lots of research to suggest that the music we like best is music that's got a heartbeat to it. So when we hear that sound, we recognize it deeply. We lean towards it. So time to memorize passages of text. Well, we put it to a heartbeat and we learn it quicker. So the Buddha um, probably didn't speak long lines, prose, probably didn't speak verses either. The Buddha explained ways to make life hurt less. Essentially, the sutras didn't start out as either one, Chang or Chong Song, the verse of the prose, started out as answers to problems, ways to make life go easier. That's what the Buddha taught. And not only, certainly, the Buddha also talked to gods who were not suffering, particularly. The Buddha spoke a different kind of dharma for gods. But um, over time, the Buddha entered nirvana and his disciples wanted to remember what he said. They wanted to keep it in mind so that they could use it later. And that's when these teachings got put into forms that could be passed on. And Often it was passed on to people who maybe couldn't read. They didn't have books, even if they could read. There weren't a lot of books around 2,500 years ago. So what they did was they passed it on orally. Mouth spoke, ears heard it, heart remembered it. So in that case, if you uh, are going to pass something on and you can make it go bump, 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 it's easier to remember. So that's why... Scholars say pretty much this was uh, the verses came first. Then later on, when it was written down and you had grammar, for example, Sanskrit, which is very grammatical language, perfect grammatical language, they elaborated. They would take the simplest basic principles of the verses and say them in a grammatical way, in a prose way. So that's scholars' theory. Um, There are parts of the sutra where it specifies that 
the speaker, the Buddha, sometimes Sudana, Shangsai Tongzi, speak in verses. Um, in our Avatamsaka Sutra, the Buddha shows up and the spirits come out. The water spirits, the mountain spirits, the earth spirits, the river spirits, they all come to praise the Buddha because they're just mesmerized by the Buddha's beauty. He's shedding light. His skin is golden colored. His features are perfect. His teeth are perfect. His eyelashes are perfect. They specify how perfect the Buddha's eyelashes are. He's not using mascara. It's just that way. He's got blessings. And when you have blessings, you are perfect. Right? And so the spirits come out and they see him and they go, Oh, world honored one, perfect in every wisdom power, perfect in blessings and wisdom, perfect in compassion. Let me bow to you and tell you how wonderful you look and how kind you are. This is part of every opening chapter. The opening of every chapter has that. And it says, what do they do? They speak it in verses. Right? They say it in a metered form. So, um, just to say that um, when we look at these texts, understand these are living documents that um, we get this only later. Right? Usually for the first mm, two-thirds of the life of this text, it was only spoken. So we've come to that part. We've come to that part of the text. Um, and it said last, uh, the thing that we read t- today was the very last paragraph of the prose section. And it said, if the Bodhisattva uses Bodhisattva vows to appear like Guanyin Bodhisattva appearing in all the different forms, then he can surpass that number. What number? Turn over back to 81. Turn back to 81 and 80. And what we found out was last week we talked about the Bodhisattva entered Samadhi. And because he entered Samadhi, he had hundreds of things happen. And you can see in that paragraph, all these incredible abilities came to the Bodhisattva as a result of Samadhi. Last week we talked in, in detail about what, a, what the Samadhis are like. And we talked about the Dhyanas, right? The four Dhyanas, the four kinds of Chanding, Dhyana Samadhi. And what happens? There's, um, there was a lot of interest online, a lot of questions and here about Samadhis. Anybody want to ask further before we move on about those Samadhis? What it's like to enter the Li Sheng Xi Le Di, Ding Sheng Xi Le Di, Li Xi Miao Le Di, She Nian Qing Jing Di. The four stages, they're also called Di, grounds. The first one leaves behind what living beings can experience into a realm that only the Brahma gods can know. Or you can know if you enter that Samadhi. Two, the stage of happiness when Samadhi arises. Ding Sheng Shi Di. Three, the state of bliss that leaves happiness behind. It's a kind of state that's way beyond ordinary happiness. And then there's a state where all coarse thoughts, your mind finally is subdued. Shunin, changing the state of purity. Um, Master Shunhua says anybody who works at holding precepts and accumulating goodness, calming their mind, making all six senses mellow and quiet instead of sometimes up, sometimes down, anybody. 
can experience the dhyanas. No good. It's just to see whether or not you do that more than watching TV. Really, how do you use your time? That's the answer to how soon you can enter samadhi. You don't do it by accident. You don't do it with a goal line fever, right? Crashing over the goal line this weekend and then not meditating from Monday to Friday. It's not that way. It's got to be gradually taming. The word is subduing and taming and calming the six senses. You can enter samadhi. Can't. So, not okay. Um, there's mm, what I explained last week is available in most of Master Xuanhua's commentaries on Chan, his Chan, Qi Kaishi, his Dharma talks and Chan sessions. So any of, of Shufu's Dharma talks, you'll find that same, these same principles. Okay, the Bodhisattva, because he enters Samadhi, can do what? He sees a hundred Buddhas, knows a hundred Buddha's spiritual powers, he can make a hundred Buddha lands quake, he can go beyond those. He can illumine a hundred Buddha lands. He can teach and transform living beings of a hundred worlds. He can live for a hundred eons. He can know the boundaries of before and after of events in a hundred eons. He can enter a hundred Dharma doors, make a hundred bodies appear, and with each and every one of those bodies, he can make appear a hundred bodhisattvas surrounding each Buddha, each surrounding each body. Okay, you go, that's dazzling, my goodness. Whoa, that's amazing that all those things can happen. Right. Is the Buddha a super person? Superman, superwoman? In a way, if you only use normal consciousness, yeah. But the, the most interesting thing about these, well, I can't say that. There's lots and lots of most interesting things. But one of the most interesting things about these texts is that they're spoken for people. These abilities are not reserved for some elite individual who is born in the right family or who has the right size bank account or the right golden platinum credit card. Right? Not the, uh, it's not the uh, American Express black credit card that allows you to do anything you want. It's not that. These abilities are imprinted, coded in every single one of us waiting for us to, you could say, boot up that program. And the best example is available on your hard drive. Before you know how to use Adobe Photoshop, it's got all those incredible functions built right into it. But if you don't know how to use them, it's just another piece of confusing software. Once you know how, all that stuff can happen. You can make images dance, right? And distribute them in a million ways. But if you don't know how, it's just software. All those abilities are on, you could say, the hard drive of our minds waiting for us to boot them up. All these hundreds of things. They're all there waiting for us to do what bodhisattvas do and then these abilities arise. Not magic. It's just, the question to ask is, did I practice and live the way a bodhisattva practices and lives? If so, there you go. The sutra is here to tell us how to do it. If not, then it's still a potential, but it's not yours. Okay? Another example. Every third grader in 
When, when do you get multiplication tables? Is that third grade? Third grade. Okay. You learn to multiply and divide. As soon as a child knows, you know, two times two equals four, that child has the potential to be a theoretical mathematician. That child can do equations that will calculate the orbit of a space capsule, right? Going through that famous keyhole in space. It's only a question of will the child continue and apply themselves and continue until they master those skills. They're on the road already. Okay? As soon as any one of us sits down to meditate, we have the potential to enter these samadhis and manifest the, the abilities of the bodhisattva. It's a question of do we apply ourselves? Same principle. The theoretical mathematician who can save lives with their calculations is in that third grader. He doesn't have to trade a body. He doesn't have to do anything except apply him or herself and the very same body manifests the theoretical mathematician or the coder or the medic or the doctor who figures out <coughs> equations that can save lives. Like, did you see that they finally... Uh, sequenced uh, the entire genome for tiny wasps. This week they announced that there's uh, a wasp, a scary wasp. It's really, really tiny. It's the size of a pinhead. They've got the entire genome figured out. And this wasp goes into the... It's really grotesque. It goes into the bodies of pests that destroy crops and wipes out the pests. And it's much, much better than spraying. It's much, much better than poison. It's much, much better than the other therapies they have for getting rid of pests that wipe out grapes or corn, soybeans. And so they've now learned how to completely digitize the entire gene structure of this little tiny parasitic wasp. And everybody's going, wow, this is a great breakthrough. I'm going... If it can get rid of the, the, the bugs that eat corn, can it get rid of the bugs that keep me alive? Can it, what if it decides that I'm tasty next? You know, and they've got this wonderful wasp all figured out. It's I just uh, scary. Anyway, I won't go into that. I won't borrow trouble. At this point, it's wonderful. If it gets released, who knows, into some altered form. Um, also, there was bio, biological news this week, which was that they've done the first study of mm, genes of genetically engineered corn and discovered that there are indeed disturbing side effects. That finally they've had the first long-term study of people who've been eating genetically engineered corn and discovered that, oops, there are nasty side effects in the health. It destroys their organs. And we've been waiting because there hasn't been enough of a test case to check. And now finally they're coming out and it says, not a good idea. Another story, we'll just point to it and say, keep your eye on genetically engineered organisms, GMOs, because we've never had them before, never done them. Now the first findings are back and it's not happy for people. So if you can find non-genetically engineered organisms in this country, 
pretty much you can't unless you grow it yourself and you can guarantee where the seed came from. Another story altogether. Okay, so the Bodhisattva here has done that stuff. He has applied himself. He took these techniques and methods to heart. He did this instead of other things or she did this instead of other things. Every day recited the Great Compassion Mantra a hundred times, hundred and eight times. Every day bowed to the Lotus Sutra. Mm, every day ate vegetarian food. Every day, instead of scolding parents, was patient, applied the Dharma in all these daily ways, the everyday difficult doing of changing behavior the way to, to suit the way bodhisattvas teach. And as a result, guess what? Can, in a hundred thousand kalpas, up to and including a hundred thousand million nayutas of kalpas, beyond numbering, the bodhisattva has these abilities. Okay, that's what the sutra says. How about that? Where would these super beings come from if it wasn't from here? We're used to thinking about, you know, how, what's the backstory of Spider-Man? Well, Spider-Man was bitten by a spider in the science museum, right? And that was how Spider-Man came about, remember? Okay, he gets, Tobey Maguire gets bitten by this radioactive spider and poof, suddenly, no effort on his part. In fact, if you could ask him, I'm sure he would say, I'll pass, you know, don't bite me. I just assume be uh, Peter Parker, you know, normal, normal guy. Where does Superman come from, right? He gets infected and he's subject to kryptonite and all. So the superheroes that we know about, that we grow up with, kind of get their abilities without effort. It's not that they want to or that they work hard. So we're used to super, and furthermore, the superheroes that we know about are always in some parallel Gotham City, right? Or Utopolis or somewhere that, you know, when you put the comic book down, it's over. When you turn the channel, when the, com when the, the, the commercial comes on, the story stops, takes a break. The blood isn't real. The suffering isn't real. Um, these bodhisattvas, when we pick up these texts, what do we have? We have stories of super beings. And the reason I mention Superman and Spider-Man and Batman and the, Black, the Green Hornet is because we know those stories. Problem is, that's fiction. That's fantasy. If we were to pick up these sutras and say, likewise, fiction, fantasy, that would be understandable. It'd be too bad. Because these are not fiction and fantasy. And yet they're super beings. Super beings. Where do they come from? Let's look down. Come on down here. Ar shi jin gang zang pu sa yu chong shen qi yi ar shuo song yue at that time, Vajra Treasury Bodhisattva, wishing to restate his meaning, chanted these verses. Okay, here's the Bodhisattva um, giving us the same story that we've heard for the last hmm, nine or ten months as we looked into the sutra. But he's giving it to us in metered lines. Okay, so how did we do it before? Um, we had a melody for these, remember? We took it as a chant instead of just lot, just uh, um, words to read. Um, 
I forgot that we did that until just now. Let's see. How about let's let's try this um, in uh, okay I know what we're going to do I've been going uh, for the last couple of weeks over to to GTU to graduate theological because there's a group of folks who love to sing and they're singing the oldest religious music in North America. It's called Sacred Harp. It's also called Shape Note because the notes are designed for people who can't read music and so there's triangles, diamonds, squares, and circles. They're shapes. And if you see a diamond, it's fa. If you see a square, it's so. If you see a triangle, it's la, fa, so, la. Like that. Um, it's these hymns that go back to 1640. The oldest ones come from 1640. There are 500 of them and uh, 570 and they're called Sacred Harp. It's gathered into this text. And these folks love to sing. They just sing and sing and sing and sing. It's really wonderful. And the first thing you do is you sing the notes. The second thing you do is you sing the words with the notes. And I was there with a, a wonderful uh, man who's done his done research into this named Tim Erickson and Tim lined out the songs that people didn't know and that means he chanted the first line and they chanted it back at him so I'm suggesting we could do that now here too let me see if we can get one that's easy and that also helps us remember so we can remember these lines Okay, um, I'm going to put my palms together. Those who'd like to try it with me, um, let me give you a line. We'll go down just this first, the first four lines. Those who gather many good deeds. Let's hear it. Those who gather many good deeds succeed in all wholesome endeavors. Succeed in all wholesome endeavors. They make offerings to the one. Offerings to the one. Honored among gods and humans. Honored among gods and humans. And follow the path of kindness and compassion. And follow the path of kindness and compassion. Sounds really nice. I like that. Okay, those who gather many good deeds succeed in all wholesome endeavors. They make offerings to the ones, plural, there should be ones, honored among gods and humans, and follow the path of kindness and compassion. I'm going to put the S there so next time through we can, because it's more than one. Okay, sounds really good. Ones honored among gods and humans. 
Those who gather many good deeds succeed in all wholesome endeavors. They make offerings to the ones honored among gods and humans and follow the path of kindness and compassion. Okay, the Chinese goes like this. Okay, what's it saying? It's saying, here's how bodhisattvas arise. What do you do? Do a lot of good deeds. Gather many good deeds. If I do a lot of good deeds, what happens? The things that I want come to be. Succeed in all wholesome endeavors means stuff works out. There you go. That's really Anglo-Saxon, right? Stuff works out. It's not particularly scriptural language, but it sure communicates, doesn't it? How'd it, how'd it go? Hey, what's happening, man? Oh, it didn't, didn't work out. Oh, bummer. Yeah. Didn't work out. How you doing, man? Oh, it worked out. Oh, congratulations. You know, it's like, what's the difference between didn't work out and yeah, is somebody's got what's called blessings and the other one doesn't. Blessings make stuff work out. How come things work out? Because you had money in the bank of goodness. Because I had money in the bank of goodness. It's invisible, but it's real. When your blessings run out, things don't go right. Okay? Um, countries. It's true for countries, too. Um, I'm not going to talk about Haiti. Now, we'll talk about Haiti later. All right? Because that's a very painful immediately painful tonight painful example of, of stuff and so I'll, let's talk we can get the same principles with other examples because that's the bleeding hasn't stopped right now and to, to talk about it would be like sticking your thumb in the bleeding um, there's accounts of India in the Buddhist time and the accounts are almost hard to fathom because they say that the blessings of India at the time of the Buddha were so rich that water was nutritious. Milk was like no milk we've ever drunk. Okay, Milk that they make ghee out of and what are called the five kinds of milk products. Ghee and butter milk and curds and all those things were so incredibly rich because the grass that the cows ate and the rain that fell was just pure. The blessings in India in the Buddhist time, they say, were hard to imagine. And to go to India, my first experience in India back in 1983 was after eating a big bowl of rice, I was hungry. The rice was like eating puffed rice. Why? The soil had been leached out of nutrients. People had been eating food grown in that soil for so many thousands of years that 
there wasn't much left. And so you could eat a big bowl of rice and you'd still feel like it was not nutritious. Too many people too long, right, without replenishing. So India now, there are places in India that are very poor indeed. Bihar, the Buddha's own country up in the northeast. Very poor. You can see that there's there's lots of uh, lots of folks trying to make the planet feed them and just barely getting by. Hard to imagine that that place was full of blessings. The United States of America applying the very same principle before our eyes is exhausting its blessings. You can see it. You can see it happening. Uh, for example, the wells in America, they say, are about this tipped. Back when people, John Robbins, right, Diet for New America, John Robbins, Baskin Robbins, the heir of Baskin Robbins, the author of Diet for New America, lives in Santa Cruz, a very righteous and good man. When he wrote his book called Diet for New America, it was 1986. And uh, at the time, he talked about the runoff from cattle farms. You don't say cattle farms. They call them feedlots now. The runoff from feedlots was so dosed with nitrates that you could draw a circle around a feedlot. And for 100 miles around that circle the groundwater was tainted with nitrates. Where does nitrates come from? Nitrogen comes, urea comes from cow excrement and urine, right? Cow piss. They have to keep the cows clean, so they turn the hoses on them and wash the cows clean at a cost of a lot of water, many gallons and gallons of water. And that water washes it right down into the groundwater. John Robbins had these heart-wrenching stories of women, moms, whose babies came out blue. It was called blue baby syndrome. You've heard about it? What's it from? It comes from not enough oxygen in the blood. Why did that happen? Because the moms were feeding the babies tap water from nitrogen-rich water that came from the feedlots. John Robbins turned up that statistic, and when the video was made, because the public TV station in L.A. liked Diet for New America and turned it into a, a documentary, the documentary was so powerful and so good. It's a good-hearted documentary. It's not whiny or nasty at all. They go interview the moms holding their babies and unforgettable scenes of the mom saying, I was just drinking the water and feeding it to my little girl. I didn't know that I was poisoning her. And her voice catches and she starts to tear up and you see the, the baby who is has birth defects and that she developed after has, has crippling diseases from the groundwater. Okay, at that time the percentage of polluted wells in the West where feedlots predominate 
we're still under 50%. Now it's tipped. There are more polluted wells than there are clean running wells. And since that time, there, uh, the number of cattle ranches has decreased further and there's this concentration. Meat packers are fewer and fewer and fewer. The suppliers of McDonald's and Wendy's and Big Burger King and Big Burger and all are fewer and fewer and they're bigger and bigger. They concentrate. The big ones buy the small ones out or starve the small ones out. And there's a new phenomenon which is hams. Smithfield hams, there's about three major ham producers and the amount of pig manure Beg your pardon. If you were think, weren't thinking you were going to hear this tonight, the amount of pig manure is concentrated in these holding tanks that that are in the East Coast as well, in North Carolina in particular. So now the Chesapeake Bay is mostly polluted because they have these inspections, but they can't keep them. And every time there's an earthquake or a typhoon, those basins crack and it leaches, the water leaches. You can't hold it, the, the polluted water. So now there's things like algae infestations, this blooming green stuff that grows wherever there's fresh water and now in the Chesapeake Bay, salt water, and the poor fish can't get to the algae. So these algae die off and there are certain things that feed on this and these strange non-fish non come and grow because they're eating the stuff that has, the nitrates has fostered. So there's ecological disaster coming from excess of nitrates. And you think, oh my goodness, mm, how, did, how did we get here, right? How did we get here? Well, we got here because people didn't think beyond satisfaction of desires. Okay? There was not a sense of doing a good deed, which is to say, eating a little lower. Eating a little lower on the food chain. Going down a bit, and instead of feeding the soybeans and the corn to the animals, feeding it to the people. But the animals taste better. There's that brief explosion of flavor in the mouth of pork chops and French and fried, fried pork and fried pork in your fried rice and all that little flavor for that we go ahead and and wind up where we are now so the bodhisattvas here who do many good deeds start with the little ones if there's benefit for others Bodhisattva says, yeah, I'll do that. Even if I have to take a little bit of a loss and not, I'll pass on that explosion of flavor and eat something that's not as xiang and the Chinese is not as fragrant and as tasty, but winds up not polluting the water because it doesn't go into the animals. Without all those animals, there's not as many nitrates loose. Without as many nitrates, when the rain falls, it washes cleanly. It's not washing stuff into the groundwater that winds up hurting people and the land. So, it's like in the littlest places, John Robbins says that 
the great decisions of our world are made in the smallest places, like what you eat for lunch. Right at the dinner table is a place where we make big decisions, that little decisions that make big differences. Now I'll pass on the bacon. I'll have some waffles instead. Right? Or I'll have some whole wheat cereal, which I can digest, in fact, better than the bacon. Okay, so you get the point. But the Bodhisattva gathers many good deeds. America is in that process of losing its blessings. You can see it when the waters are polluted. You think, how did India get to where it is now from where it was then? Well, come back in 200 years and answer the question, how did America get to where it is now given where we were back before what? Before the Green Revolution that allowed chemical fertilizers to turn the same amount of land doubly productive. Why did we do it that way? There was a really good reason. We had to grow more food for the war effort. Right? The agricultural revolution, the green revolution that came about when we had chemical fertilizers instead of what we've been using all through history until that time came because we had to ship more food to Europe and to Japan or to fight the Axis, fight the Nazis and the Germans. So once we were able to grow the much, more, much more crops on the same amount of land, we're not going to go back. We're going to stop making land fertile? No. So historically, it's easy now to look back and say, we shouldn't have done it. Right? But given the choices then, that was the thing we wanted to do. So now we see that for every advance, there's an equal retreat. For every benefit, there's also a loss. Yo li, jo yo hai. Yo jin, jo yo tui. Yo cheng, no yo bai. Right? That's really a basic duality of the universe. So, looking back now, what do you do? You don't say, mm, bad, wrong, evil people. You say, let us xiu xing. Let us correct our progress. Adjust. Adjust it. Cultivation is a process of adjusting. So if we say, mm, man, nitrate fertilizers, nitrogen fertilizers make it easier to grow lots and lots of food. So what do we do with it? We feed it to animals that now we can grow. We can grow a lot more cows because we've got more fertilizer, more greens to feed them, more soybeans. And Well, cows don't grow up eating soybeans. Cows eat grass, right? But we got the soybeans because we grew them with the green fertilizer, so let's feed them to the cows. While we got a lot of cows, let's eat more beef. Hmm, drink more dairy. So step by step by step, not taking a look at it with wisdom, only looking at the flavor and the profit that comes from selling all that beef, we wind up harming the many for the benefits of the few. So, okay, don't need to preach, but just to say, a cultivator, these sutras let, give us a chance to say, mm, in fact, as I look at it, those were steps that I took. Those are decisions made bit by bit by bit. If I look at it with wisdom and say, mm, are we in a situation we can sustain? If not, let's think ahead for our children and our children 
its children and our children's children's children. Native Americans, as I learned in Melbourne, Australia, listening to Chief Jake Swamp, he said, one of the things that our tradition always tells us to do, he says, is to make decisions as if our seven generations of descendants were sitting around us. And every decision we made, we made with them, their faces in front of us. So if we really thought that way, if we made decisions that affect everybody as if we were counting on those children and the children's children in front of us saw that everything that we do affects them directly, we would probably want to trace back those steps and see where we got onto the path that is not sustainable. Sustainable means, is it going to be here? Is it going to still be here? You know, will our kids get to eat plants? Uh, so, that's, a, that's traditional wisdom. That's very, very helpful. So the Bodhisattva does what? He gathers in many good deeds. She gathers many good deeds. Little ones. Little decisions that have big results down the road for our ancestors. For our descendants, not our ancestors, for our descendants, for those who will come from us in the future. Those who gather good deeds, stuff works out. They succeed in their wholesome endeavors. Okay, got a great story. Um, I really recommend, if, if you're getting bummed out by all the bad news, um, go to, type in daily good. Type in daily good into your browser. And I think it's dailygood.org. But if you just do daily good, you'll find it. It's Charity Focuses Good News Net. And subscribe, just put in your email address. And they're very careful. You won't regret it. What will happen once you subscribe to Daily Good through Charity Focus is every day in your mailbox you'll get a piece of good news. And the stories are so inspiring. Here we hear about bodhisattvas who gather a lot of little good deeds and as a result things work out. They succeed in their wholesome endeavors, meaning stuff works out. And further, they make offerings to the ones honored among gods and humans. Who are the ones honored among gods and humans? It means Buddhas. That's a title. Uh, what is it? It's Shi Zun, right? Tian Ren Zun. Tian Ren Zun. Gods, humans, honored ones. So they make offerings to the Buddhas and follow the path of kindness and compassion. That's how you get to be a bodhisattva. Okay, so um, it says that bodhisattvas do little good deeds. As a result, stuff works out. They make offerings to Buddhas and act kindly. They have kind hearts. This is how you get to be a bodhisattva. All right. When you subscribe to Daily Good, you get the flesh and blood of that principle we just heard. For example, there was a, a wake recently. Do you know, do you have wakes in your tradition? In I'm Irish and Scottish, both on 
My dad is Irish, my mother was Scottish. And in that tradition, in the Celtic tradition, they have wakes. When somebody dies, you come together and celebrate the good things they did. So a death is an occasion for a party. You party after somebody dies. Not because you lack respect, but because um, everybody has goodness. And in the wake, you remember, you recall all the good things they did. There was a wake in Helena, Montana, recently, for a guy named Ben Kennedy. And if you didn't live in Helena, Montana, you'd have no clue who Ben Kennedy was. And even if you lived in Helena, you probably wouldn't hear his name. But you could have seen him because he lived downtown and Ben Kennedy was the kind of guy who you'd see at the dumpster and you'd see him rooting around and you'd see him uh, in the in the, the mission where you go for food. You'd see him at Glide or at, uh, somewhere in the Tenderloin probably helping somebody out. Um, he collected cans. He flattened cardboard for recycling. He did the little, the little goods. And uh, if you were downwind of him, you'd be aware of him because he smelled. He didn't wash very often. He didn't get under a roof very often. His hair was really wild. And uh, he was losing his teeth. Probably hadn't been to a dentist in way too long, Kevin. You, you didn't meet him. He didn't show up in your, your office for sure. Um, but he was a native of a little town a few miles east of Great Falls. And he died in his public assistance housing on December 2nd, just short of his 87th birthday. So he was a Sagittarian. We know that about him. So on the anniversary of his birthday, they held a wake for him in the Windbag Saloon, which is a bar, but that's where everybody could gather close to where he lived. They had a huge party filled with emotion, filled with laughter, and filled with tears. Why? Because people who knew Ben Kennedy gathered but didn't know of each other, and they all told their stories, and everyone was amazed because he had helped in little ways all over the city of Helena. For example... Uh, he had little more than Social Security as an income. And then the little bits that he got from his uh, recycling efforts. And from that little trickles of income, he saved every single penny and regularly made donations to charities all over town, such as the Nature Conservancy that buys up land that would go to developers otherwise, and the Montana Land Reliance, a land trust, Ben would regularly come and hand in, what, hundred crisp hundred dollar bills to these people. You know, and, and they, they met each other at the Windbag Saloon to say, what are you doing here, Ben Kennedy? What are you doing here, Ben Kennedy? Well, what did he do for you? Well, he, would, he was one of our best regular donors for years and years. This guy would come in and, of course, we would kind of, you know, he would scare you because he looked so, so uh, unkempt. But he was a huge donor and a benefactor and the most reliable and regular. And he would come in and he would pull out Kleenexes and bottle caps and things out of his pocket and then would come a $100 bill and he'd lay it on the counter and say, not much, but it's all I can do now. You know, mm-hmm. and then he would go out 
and you'd see them in the alley again going through the trash. But everybody had their story about Ben Kennedy. And he didn't tell you anything about his past, where he'd been, what he had done, if he had a family, or why he was giving like this, other than he just did it for the goodness. It's what he's supposed to do. And uh, he... The, the only, the only uh, biographical fact they knew about him was that he said, having, it's lucky to be rich. It's lucky to be rich enough to give. So he was rich enough to give, and he felt he had a duty to share. So that's Ben Kennedy, kind of mysterious guy, but he totally, totally got the principle of gathering many good deeds. And as a result... When he died at the wake, everybody had these amazing stories to tell about this man who just knew how lucky it was to be able to give. So that story came to me over Daily Good, right? That was in my email box the other day, just as a gift. So bodhisattvas don't show up with their laminated bodhisattva club card you know with their membership number you don't know who they are but if you look at what they do using principle as your as your measure sure enough this is someone who understands how to make things work out okay gathers many good deeds therefore succeeds in wholesome endeavors good things come to be they make offerings to the Buddhas and follow the path of kindness and compassion. What does it mean to make offerings to Buddhas? Well, there are formal ways, there are official ways, and then there are other ways. The official ways are um, such things as, look, if you can see the altar behind me, off the camera, you can see it. All the altars over here in the monastery, um, I regularly give tours at the monastery. School classes come and the mail letter carrier comes in and delivery men come in and they want to know what's there. And one of the things that I point out is everything on the altar is natural. Um, for example, the fruit, the water, the incense, the flowers, the food that's there. All those things come from nature. And it used to be candles and lamps. Now, because we, our whole building is made of wood, so we don't do candles and lamps. We do electric lights. But uh, if the lamp, candles and lamps are there, they're natural as well. So everything that is here as an offering is part of the natural world. Second, nothing died to put what's on that altar there. There's no struggle, there's no suffering, there's no pain in the things that are on the altar. Third, if you trace back the things on the altar, every one of them delights the senses. Incense makes the nose happy. It smells nice. The flowers make the eyes happy and the heart because flowers are very symmetrical, and very colorful. The lights also please the eye. The water 
is a necessity for the body and it's this still pure pool of water the food pleases the tongue right? every one of those things on the altar is something that from the donor the donor gave it because it was pure and perfect to the Buddhas as the finest this is the finest pure orange that the market could sell me so I'm putting this beautiful orange in front of the Buddha and these flowers are perfect and pure and you offer them up so every item there is designed to represent the purity of intention of the donor and there's nothing on that altar that costs very much either that's an important principle right if it was something that only the rich could put out then the altar would be bare most of the year right because how many rich people come through the door and make offerings not very many but every day we've got these beautiful fruits and flowers water and food because these are offerings that we can put out there ordinary folks and yet the purity and the perfection of the orange and these things these chrysanthemums and the baby's breath and just beautiful and the glass that's very wonderful pure offerings so the, the point is that the interaction between the donor and the Buddha is what's happening that's the story right in making offerings to the one honored among gods and humans what does it mean when you the donor are thinking I'd like to offer something to the Buddha what do you think about you reach for your credit card right away no you don't have to you can you know bring a box of saltines and if you like and put it in front of the Buddha you can bring a beautiful flower put it in front of the Buddha you know you can offer some clean water it's a perfect offering it's what it does to us the donor that makes it the offering to the Buddha um, you could also say that's, so these are official formal formal official offerings um, when I made my first offering to Gold Mountain Monastery I hadn't learned this principle so what did I do I knew that it was appropriate to take something okay so I was a graduate student living in a commune up in the Berkeley Hills and I was cooking for myself and you know went to the went to Andronico's market like uh, at the time it was the Berkeley Co-op I went to the Berkeley Co-op like once every week or so so I didn't have a lot of groceries so I thought what should I take so I thought well I could take that uh, okay that's that's something that I'll, I'll have to go buy another one to replace it but that's a, that's probably a good offering right so I put it in a bag and carried it over to Gold Mountain and when I got there Gofa uh, Olson opened the door and let me in I said I brought an offering he says oh that's nice what have you got so I pulled it out put it down he goes you can't offer that to the Buddha I said what's wrong with it it's half a squash you know it's like it's, it's, it's a th- only three days old what's wrong with it? half a squash take it back eat it you know the Buddha don't want my squash he says no no 
explain something to you. So I, it was a nice squash. It was an acorn squash. I'd eaten half of it, and I was going to offer the half to the Buddha. So he explained to me, no. Next time I get it, it can be a little bit new, fresh, right? new. Not one that you've eaten, you know. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I get it, I get it. So it took a while, but I, you know, it's like, in that case, probably the intent wasn't quite enough. But anyway, so everything here is like, you know, it's really nice, but simple. Comes from nature. Nothing died. And it represents uh, an attempt to purify. Right? So the altars are, you always feel good around a, a nice altar. I remember in uh, Kuala Lumpur, um, no, it was uh, Jakarta in Indonesia. They have this thing called Sambal Jiao in Indonesia. And Sambal Jiao is Buddhism, Taoism, and uh, I think Jesus is on the altar and Confucianism. And that was the first place that I saw ducks, chickens, and white wine on the altar. And I have to see, seeing, I have to say, seeing this dead duck on the altar. Ah. You know, kind of like in the cartoons, they'd have X's for eyes. You know, there it was, lying this platter. You know, all brown and cooked. And I thought that doesn't belong there. And I had to think about why. And I realized that's a dead duck. That duck didn't want to be laid on there. You know, it's the Buddha looking down and going, "Oh boy, I hope I get some good, big piece of that. I'll save the white meat." You know? No, the Buddha's not. You know, it's like it's a dead animal. It died in, unhappily. You don't want to put that in front of the altar. But there it was, and it was like, "Oh, that's why that doesn't look right." Because these altars, there's when you look at them, you feel calm, concentrated. You feel purified. So. That's the official kind of offerings. What other kinds of offerings go to the Tiangren, Sun, the one honored among gods and humans? Let's look at uh, Ben Kennedy. Okay. Could he, I mean, you could put a $100 bill in the altar. I don't think it would, you know, ultimately it would have to find its way in the offering box. But he was making offerings of land, land trust. He was saying, uh, I'm going to offer park to everybody in Helena, Montana. Although it's not an official offering, traditional offering in front of the Buddha, he was making an offering to generations of people who would enjoy that park. That's equally, or maybe even more valuable offering to the Buddha, although it's not, quote, traditional. It's making it possible for there to be oxygen in the future so that you could get off of cement. Um, One of the real drawbacks of the Berkeley Monastery is the fact that it's downtown. It's one of the great gifts. It's an urban monastery, but it's really hard to get my feet off cement. I have to go. I mean, we have a little bit of a lawn. That's nice. Um, But if I want to find something that's not paved, I have to go somewhere. You know. So uh, there's lots of ways to make offerings. Here's another story from Daily Good. I love this story. This is a really wonderful story because it totally 
turns on its head the mad rush to exhaust the planet's blessings. It's a story from Australia. It just happens to be from Australia. The title of it is, Who Wants to Be a Billionaire? I don't. That's the story. That's the title. It's about a guy named Jeffrey Lee. He is an Aborigine. He is the last survivor of the Joke clan. D-J-O-K. Joke clan. He's shy. He's 36 years old. He's the last custodian of the traditional lands of the Joke people in Australia. It's down, I believe it's in Victoria, down where, where Melbourne is. This story comes from 2007, but it's a fresh story. Okay, is uranium valuable? The answer is, yeah. Ask the Persians, ask the Iranians, right? The Iranians are going nuts to try to find uranium. So if you have uranium, you can make atomic weapons, right? You can't make atomic weapons. Your uranium is really valuable. You can't have an atomic power plant without uranium. Uranium is limited on the planet, and that's why it's so expensive and so valuable. One of the richest deposits of uranium in the world is on the traditional lands of the Joke clan in southern Australia. Jeffrey Lee doesn't want to touch it. If he did, he could be one of the world's richest human beings. Okay? He says, no, no, no. This is my country. Look, it's beautiful. And I only fear that somebody will disturb it, he says. He is pointing to land around the Kakadu National Park where the French mining giant of Reva wants to extract 14,000 tons of uranium that are there that could make him a five billionaire. He himself could have five billion dollars if he would only say, sign my name on the contract, right? He is the senior custodian of the Kungara uranium deposit and he has decided to never let the ecologically sensitive land be mined. He's saying, nope, probably with a smile, nope, to progress, right? He says, these are sacred sites. These are burial sites. There are special places out there that it is my responsibility to look after. He says, sanity. I'm not interested in money. He says, I got a job. I can buy food. He calls it Tucker. I can buy Tucker, he says. I can go fishing and hunting. That's all that matters to me, he says. I don't need five billion dollars to the raping of this ancestral land. So, this is absolutely heroic. He has turned the land over to the World Heritage Site called Kakadu that is now protected and safe forever. He gave the land to a land trust. So it's not just him, because it was just him. They'd kill him <laughs> to get 14,000 tons of uranium. Oh, yes. Oh, let's get him into the next spirit world quickly. Hmm? 
The Kungara deposit is three kilometers from Nurlangi Rock, which is one of the most visited attractions in Kakadu. He says, it's time for me to talk about what I've decided to do because I fear for my country. I was taken all through here on my grandmother's shoulder. I heard all the stories. I learned everything about the land and I want to pass it on to my kids. Where has he been? He's been in hiding because he knew that if it was known that he was the last custodian, they'd wipe him out overnight. He'd be dead and they'd steal it. So he went to the newspaper, The Age, the, the newspaper down in Melbourne, and took the reporters out and showed them this beautiful bush country. And he said, here, this is a sacred place because a giant blue-tongued lizard lives here still and should not be disturbed. Okay? And it was painted on a rock thousands of years ago. He says, this creature is still here. Uh, it's a place where there is spiritual essence. The feng shui there is very important. And he says, my father and grandfather said that they would agree to opening a land, but they didn't want it then. But I've learned as I've grown up that uranium is poison. Wherever it's mined, the land dies. So mm, he said, my father and the grandfather were offered cars and houses. Nobody told them about the uranium. They just said, give us the title and we'll give you the land. Well, they didn't do it, and even though they wanted to, but I'm not going to do it. He said, if you disturb that land and bring that poison up, bad things will happen. He said, there will be floods, there will be earthquakes, people will have bad accidents. He said, talk about guts. He said, there's a place on this land where the rainbow serpent a mythological creature that is in control of the water has gone. It's a place so sacred I have never seen it and I do not dare to look. I won't go there. I won't even talk about it. So the French nuclear power company, the biggest one in the world, wants to pull the uranium out on its 12.5 square kilometer lease because the price of uranium has gone through the roof. Mr. Lee declared that the government of Australia is now in charge of this land, a land trust, it will never be touched. Under the Aboriginal Land Rights Act, uh, they have to, the company has to get Mr. Lee's approval at a meeting called by the Northern Land Council before it can extract the uranium. So, and he says, that's not going to happen. There will be no more new mining in this territory. So the government told UNESCO, the world body in which Kakadu is listed as a heritage site, it would agree in principle for Kungara to be incorporated into the park if the traditional owners requested it. Mr. Lee, who is a ranger in the park, said, we are now going to put this heritage site into the park and I will see to it that the land remains protected. The traditional laws, customs, sites, food, trees, plants, and water will stay the same as when I got them from my father and my grandfather and great-grandfather. Mr. Lee uh, is called the mystery man of Kakadu because he wisely stayed out of sight. They couldn't find him until he went public after it was given into the heritage site. He says, actually, I have another concern. I am the sole member of the joke clan and I don't have any children to pass the land on to. He says, I'm going to have to see what I can do about that. So if anybody wants uh, a good uh, ranger for a husband, I can tell you... (laughs) 
where to find one. So, those who gather many good deeds succeed in all wholesome endeavors. They make offerings to the ones honored among gods and humans and follow the path of kindness and compassion. So, simple way to describe that. How do you know if you're gathering many good deeds? How do you know how to succeed in wholesome endeavors? One really good way is to ask yourself, does this benefit me only now? Or if I had seven generations of my children and children and children and children seven times here in front of me, would I make the same decision? If the answer is yes, do it with strength. Go for it. The answer is no, it's only to please me now, this body or this even this moment. Then maybe wait, pause, and say, how could I expand the benefits? How can I sustain the goodness? How can I keep the goodness going to my children and my children's children? That answer is the Native American answer. That's what Chief Jake Swamp told us in Melbourne. The Parliament was the Native American wisdom says when you're deciding something that is held in common look into the faces of seven generations and ask yourself if they too get the benefits. If so, do it. If not, pause. Okay. Um, I mentioned, I haven't mentioned Haiti because, uh, as I say, it's still bleeding. But um, in front of you, you should have one of these. It says prayer. I think it's important to offer what you can. And one of the things that we can offer as a group that we can't offer as individuals is the power of shared song and prayer. When we sing it together, it gets more strength. And if you don't have one, did everybody get one? We printed up a bunch. Please share with your neighbor. This is a song called Prayer. And it's a prayer in itself. So we can, as we sing it, we can it's a musical prayer, so we can pray as we sing. Um, some of you have heard it. If you haven't, you can learn it really quickly because it's got a very mellow, easy melody. I'll just start, and uh, if we can keep... We're going to dedicate merit after this, but I'd like to keep the suffering of Haiti and the people who live there and the families of the people who live there and the animals that live there. Keep them in our thoughts as we sing this. Fill my heart with sincerity Fill my still thoughts full of gratitude. Lift our hearts as one in prayer. And 
the next to last verse let a prayer let a
That's uh, written by Guo Mengyong, Guo Laoshi. Does anybody know it in Chinese? Everybody has seen and heard so much about the disaster in Haiti. The picture on the front page of New York Times just before the lecture began showed uh, our Secretary of State, Hillary Rodham Clinton, bless her heart, sitting in Port-au-Prince with the uh, President Preval of Haiti and heads of state from all over the world in Port-au-Prince just thinking how can we get the food we have and the water to the people it's not easy Um, the latest news just before that was that on the uh, if this is a map Port-au-Prince is kind of here and down here on the southern part there was another city 40,000 people had equal shaking and disaster but went completely off the radar because the roads are blocked there's been no relief to this other town where thousands of people have suffered just the way they did in the capital but only now has the news reached the media that there's another town waiting for help with nobody knowing so my goodness what a lot of grief and if you, if people would like to know how to offer um, strength, please go to Dharma Forest. Um, that's my blog, and there are Buddhist charities. Dharma Forest, one word, dot org. Um, I'm sorry, I told you wrong. That's not a correct. Type in Dharma Forest to your to your search engine because it's paramita.typepad.com you can't find that easily put Dharma Forest into your search engine it'll take you to the blog there are two Buddhist charities world global relief organizations one is Siji that is did you see the New York Times reported that the first airplane to land uh, first relief airplane was a Huahang China Airlines carrying Siji volunteers first ones to land at Port-au-Prince Airport two days ago. Siji is fast. They're ready. They're fast. They're really going. Um, the second group, the second Buddhist relief organization is just getting underway. It's Bhikkhu Bodhi's Buddhist Global Relief. Click on that link in my blog and it'll take you right there. If you want to type Buddhist Global Relief into your browser, it'll take you there. And they're, they're offering ways to donate. Um, if you can go pretty much anywhere online and it will take you to reliable 
um, places to donate. Um, if you want the traditional ones that are trustworthy, go to the New York Times. The L-E-D-E, -E, the lead, that's the, uh, the blog. It's right on the front page of the New York Times. They have the newest updated news about uh, who's, where, where your money can go fastest and safe. There are a lot of scams, but if you go to to Tsuji or to Buddhist Global Relief or to the New York Times, they're updating the current best ways to donate. There are lots of choices that are all reliable. Okay, dedication of merit. It's there on your sheet. And make a wish. Send that merit wherever you'd like. Because our 